Beloved, if you don't know me, I'm one of the pastors here, Mike Sherritt. It's been my privilege to walk us through a series this spring called A Shepherding Community. One of the pieces was the testimonies you've heard from your elders and their wives for the last six or so weeks. The other was doing some messages out of the scriptures, addressing the role of elder, the qualifications for the role of elder and officer. We're ending our series this morning in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. There's a very simple outline for you in the bulletin if that will help you follow along. This is the word of the Lord. But I, brothers and sisters, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you're not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. This is the word of the Lord. There are in Charlottesville many fine human organizations attempting to bring to our commonwealth, our nation, and our world things that make for human flourishing much better, and we're grateful. Trinity Church is not one of them. We are a distinctly spiritual organization. We are not essentially a human endeavor. We are utterly completely dependent for our existence and everything that we do on the supernatural work of the spirit of the risen Jesus. Nothing of eternal value will ever happen through the ministry of this church, ever. Though we are made up of human beings, nothing will ever happen without the empowering and the presence and the gifting and the work of the Spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is easy to forget. When a church seems to be going well, it's always a nanosecond away from starting to drift into trusting human means, human measures, and human ingenuity, and human power to do what God's called it to do. 
I'm not saying that's Trinity right now. I am warning you about this. And if there's ever a church on display that's doing ministry in a human way, it's Corinth. Did you notice in verse 3 how Paul pointedly addresses them as behaving only in a human way? Verse 4, are you not being merely human? Consequently, Paul cannot impart to them the rich doctrine that they need to thrive. Verse 1, but I, brothers and sisters, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, infants in Christ. I've fed you with milk, not solid food, for you are not ready for it. And even now you're not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. They're converted, but they are acting like the unconverted. Yes, we all start the Christian life as babes. You can only start on milk. But it is the clear expectation of the Lord that we would all grow and mature. So doing church in a human way incurs a fairly strong rebuke from the apostle because being just a human church will invariably manifest itself in a lack of spiritual vitality and in fractured relationships. Verse 3, Paul identifies the fraction of relationships. While there's still jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving in a human way? Here's the question we want to answer this morning from this text. How do we have a spiritual church and not merely a human one? Because as good as we might be right now, we're always, always in danger of drifting away from complete, utter dependent and reliance upon the Holy Spirit for everything Jesus has called us to be and do. Here's two elements from the text. How do we keep from having a human church and have a spiritual church? Number one, recognize the master matters most. Look at verse 5. Paul says, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Not who, what? And he answers in terms of, of a noun. Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. So why is he bringing this up? The context for this is actually back in chapter 1. So turn in chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians in your, in your Bible and look at verse 10. Here's the situation that he's returning to address in chapter 3. Paul writes, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, this is chapter 1, verse 10, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there's no divisions among you, but that you're united in the same mind and the same judgment. That's a mark of a healthy church. For it has been reported to me by close people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers and sisters. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, I follow Christ. So you need to imagine that we're the Corinthian church. And there's a group, of, we're gathered, so to speak, and there's a group over here who say, Paul, he's the bomb. Church planners, they're awesome. Paul, what a hard worker, how courageous, not physically impressive, but dude, he's a planter. Paul. And this group of people here say, yeah, Paul's good. Paulos, Paulos, 
was sent from Ephesus. He was an Alexandrian Jew, steeped in the scriptures, an eloquent man, a fabulous teacher, erudite. Man, you hung on his every words when he preached. This group is the Apollos group. We like Paul. Apollos is the man. And then these people over here say, yeah, we get it. Paul's a planter. Apollos is a good teacher. But, you know, Cephas, Peter, he goes back to the original 12. We're, we're of Peter. That makes us extra special. And then this group over here goes, we got you all beat. Apollos, Cephas, Paul, you know, Paul, that's great. We follow Christ. We're the super spiritual. So, the human way to do a church is what? What have we just learned? Allow personalities and their gifts to blur the facts. That's how you do a human church. Allow personalities and their gifts to blur the facts. What are the facts? Thank you for asking. Fact. The Lord uses servants. That's the Greek word for the table waiter. Remember verse 5? Who are we? Servants through whom you believe. The Lord uses servants. Fact. The Spirit gives them gifts and assigns them a place. Verse 5. As the Lord assigned to each. Fact. They are nothing if what? The Lord doesn't empower them. Verse 7. We'll see this in a few minutes. Neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything. Conclusion. If the Lord doesn't empower a servant, excuse me, let's put it positively. If the Lord blesses the ministry of a person, then glory to the person or the Lord? How many vote for the person? Good. <laughs> glory to the Lord. And he's kind of set them up for this at the end of chapter 1. Verse 29. Where Paul says, no human being will boast in the presence of God. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. So what's the application? Beloved, don't elevate one servant over another. Like you, all of the women in the women's council, all the people on staff here, all of your deacons, all of your elders, all of your pastors, we all have a master just like you. We're just servants. All believers, all believers and their leaders look with servant eyes to the same master, King Jesus. And any servant worth following, you can see, has put on that servant's apron and has cast their eyes off themselves onto others, looking up to others and esteeming them more highly than themselves. That's a true servant of Jesus. They esteem others more highly than themselves. They never take the credit. Now, what, why the Corinthians are thinking this way is they were too in, uh, influenced by their culture. In ancient Greek culture, uh, the ancient Greeks valued worldly wisdom expressed in persuasive eloquence. One commentator said the Greeks were intoxicated with fine words. This kind of thinking and valuing had obviously crept into the thinking of the members in the church. Now, let's grant this. You can't help but resonate with one preacher over another. Some of you resonate with Kelly. Some of you re resonate most with Jesse. 
Walter, are you here? Some of you just, you're like, when Walter preaches, you're, you're like, yeah, I resonate more with him. I think that's humanly understandable. But we must mitigate our preferences with the facts. Fact, there are only two kinds of Christian leaders. Those who see themselves as desperately dependent on the grace of Jesus, destitute without the power of the Holy Spirit, and leaders who don't see it that way. Just to put it in stark, simplistic terms. Fact, when the day is over, we're all servants of Christ. Fact, it's the master who matters. So when you make more of the name of the servant, Paul, Apollos, Cephas, we can't say that about Jesus. When you do that, you have, you're more enamored with people than the master. And so Paul exposes this with a volley of questions in verse 13. Look at verse 13. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? He's pointing out the absurdity of a party spirit and a clique. Every one of us, leader or not, belongs to the one body of Christ. Every one of us, leader or not, needs the cross of Jesus. The cross of Jesus declares every single Christian helplessly, hopelessly, powerlessly wretched and then loved by Jesus. It's all the same. Every one of us was baptized in the name of Jesus, not in the name of a human being. The, to be baptized is to put the seal of ownership on you. You don't want the seal of ownership of Mike on you. You don't want the seal of ownership of Carlton Dixon on you. You don't want the seal of ownership of Kelly Scott on you. You want the seal of Jesus' ownership on you because only he can keep you into eternity. So, beloved... We want to be a spiritual church? Keep the main thing the main thing. Jesus is master, head of the body, the supplier of every gift. Jesus condescendingly equips all of us with the gifts he gives us. We're all very ordinary people and in, in his extraordinary kingdom. I don't often use props. So two weeks ago was an exception. I had the apron. I got to use another prop with you today. You know what this is? This, actually, it says Mike on it. So this is the one I use at home because Janice wants me to keep my grubby paws off her dishwashing. This is a dishwashing glove. It's useless until what? Until it is empowered. As a pastor, I am useless until I am empowered by the Holy Spirit. Our community groups are useless until the Holy Spirit falls. Your prayer life is impotent until the Holy Spirit comes. Your studying and reading of the Bible is valueless without the Holy Spirit. We're all dishwashing gloves. That's it. Without the Holy Spirit. Now, all right, was that tacky? It works for me. So, beloved, the gifts God gives people are whose gifts? They're the Spirit's gifts. 
My gifts aren't mine. They're the Spirit's. I am called to steward them for God's glory, for your edification. Paul comes around to saying more about that. I'm cutting it for time in 1 Corinthians 12. To what degree can you be thankful for the gifts of the servants in your church? Of course you can give thanks for them. Notice how he says in verse 5, these are servants through whom you believed. That tells you what? That what ultimately matters? The messenger or the message? See, some of you will go out to lunch or dinner later today. And you'll wait for your food. And the server will bring you your food. And sort of in an instant, you're thankful for the server, right? But beloved, what matters? The food. Was that funny? <laughs> it was funny? <laughs> I kind of think it's poignant, but that's fine. <laughs> what matters is the food. It is the message that matters. That's what Paul is saying. Thank you, Lord, for the messenger, but it's the message. He is so careful to convey this. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. So careful. He says, and I, when I came to you, brothers and sisters, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's it. When he left Corinth for the last time, he would want the people to say, all that mattered about Paul was he preached Jesus to us and his cross. No servant worth their salt would want you to place an emphasis on them to the exclusion of the grace that made them fruitful. And he actually comes back to it at the end of chapter 3. He can't get away from the theme. That's how important it is. Chapter 3, verse 21. So, let no one boast in men. This group over here, stop boasting in Paul. Stop boasting in Apollos. Stop boasting in Jesus. All of uh, uh, Cephas, all of you boast in Christ. So this is the group that has it right. He says, all things are yours, whether Paul, Apollos, Cephas, or the world. Or, it's a little tongue-in-cheek. You are Christ, and Christ is God's. All things are yours. You don't need to find your wealth in a personality, in a favorite person. You're rich in Jesus. <laughs> No one else can give you what he gives you. No one else is going to let you down. People will let you down. Jesus will never let you down. You could always say to a leader, he could have done it better. No one ever said of Jesus Christ, he could have done it better. So leaders should never strive to be enamored. They should indeed strive to be examples. Let me finish this point with the whole point of the poison that was seeping into their fellowship, and that was strife and jealousy. When we lose sight of what makes us a spiritual church, we're tempted towards, he says, jealousy and strife. I'm not saying that exists at Trinity. We want to prevent that. What is jealousy? I've experienced this because I'm dissatisfied fundamentally with the place God has put me, the station he's called me, the gifts he's given me. I envy what someone else has, whether it's their gifts their money, their appearance, their family, their intellect. It could be any number of things. I've experienced this kind of jealousy many different ways since I've gone into the ministry. Like we get Tim Keller mentioned over here by Bob. Am I jealous of Tim's fame and his brain and his ability to preach? Of course I am. Yeah, yeah, yeah I'm jealous. Strife. What is strife? Strife is what happens when the Paulinites, the Apolloites, the Cephasites, 
I've got to leave you guys out. Well, our view of baptism is superior to yours. Our view of women's roles in ministry is superior to yours. My theology is superior to yours. My exegesis is routinely better than yours. That's, that's the strife. We think our way is superior. That, beloved, is not humble, other-centered servanthood. Beloved, the humble heart looks at somebody else's gifts, gifts and says what? Thank you, Lord, for their gifts. Make those gifts fruitful. And, Lord, whatever you've given me, make it fruitful according to the way you want me to use those gifts. That's the longest point in the sermon. What are we asking? How do we avoid being a human church and be a spiritual church? One of those elements is keep the master the main thing. Secondly, and shorterly, rejoice that everything goes back to God. It's no wonder that a church planter, that's me, loves this verse. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but only God who gives the growth. We have a thing in the PCA called the Church Planners Assessment Center. So if you want to be supported and get the signal of endorsement by our denomination on you as a church planter, you go through the assessment, they give you a grade. What they should do, I don't think they do this, but when they, when they give you a grade, they should put on it, and you're nothing. <laughs> you're nothing. If God doesn't cause the growth, don't do it. Don't even try. He who plants, he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. For emphasis in the Greek, every one of those phrases starts with God. 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 God's fellow workers. God's field. God's building. So what's Paul using? A very familiar agricultural image. The Corinthians are the field in which Paul planted. He started the church there. Church planner, I'd be tempted to be in this group over here. What happened? Paul left. He had Apollos come in and teach them. Fabulous teacher. He got the right guy. But they're both co-equals. And according to Paul, who matters? What, uh, who's the only person that counts, according to the text? Who's the only person that counts? God. Because if the planter plants without water, what's going to happen? Nothing. If the waterer comes and there's no plant, what's going to happen? You're wasting your water. God gives the growth. Only God can make people grow spiritually. Only God can convert people. And it, goes, it all goes back to him. He is essential. He is sovereign. He is supreme. He is sufficient. Here's how Jesus pounded, pounded it in to his disciples thinking, John 15, 5. I'm the vine. You're the branches. Abide in me. If you do, you'll bear much fruit. For apart from me, you can do. Say it real loud. Apart from me, you can do. Do you think he believed it? And then he went and taught on the Holy Spirit in John 16. So the disciples... They were mentored by Jesus for three years. They become eyewitnesses of the resurrection. Are they ready to be sent out and change the world? And they did change the world. Are they ready to be sent out? They've seen the resurrected Christ. Are they ready? No. Wait for whom? The Holy Spirit. 
You, you guys are going to flop and fail without the Holy Spirit. He came, and amazing ministry happens, and you know the rest of the story. So you got to love the paradox. Jesus says, you're nothing. I'm sorry, Paul says, you're nothing. Only God counts. You can't bring about any spiritual growth. Only the Spirit can. You're nothing, but you're so special. Can you say that about yourself? On the one hand, with respect to my impotence to ultimately bring about any spiritual good, I'm nothing, but God declares I am special because he says you are God's building. You're his field. You're the work of God. You know where God harvests? It is very level ground. We are all bound by our mutual need to trust the Lord. We're all desperately dependent on the Holy Spirit. We all belong to God as his fellow workers. So, beloved, don't be so amazed that God gifts people as you are that God loves you. Because as his building, you are very, very, very expensive to buy. It cost God the safety and welfare and honor of his son to make you his. God doesn't say, hey, come on, belong to me. He, he can't do that. You're too dirty. You're too lost. You're too sinful. It took the cross of Jesus Christ to make you his precious possession. And what Jesus dies for, whom Jesus raises... Oh, that is incredibly special to the Father so much he'll never let you go. You are, a, you are a person of infinite value to God, proved by the love of Jesus dying for you, giving his life for you. So let me just close with this image for you. We are people, I hope you believe now, utterly dependent on the Holy Spirit. How many of you went into a room in your house, perhaps your bedroom this morning, and it was fairly dark, and you pulled up the shade to let the light in? Did anybody do that this morning? I did that from, from my wife's room. So it's dark. What did I do? I intentionally did something to let the light in. We must constantly, intentionally ask the Spirit into our hearts. Ask the Spirit into our minds. Ask the Spirit to control our tongues. This requires another sermon for another day on Ephesians 5.18. Don't be drunk with wine. That is dissipation. But be filled with the Spirit. That's probably the most neglected commandment among Christians. How many times this past week did you ask the Lord to fill you, control you, to be intoxicated with the spirit of life and Christ and goodness and self-sacrifice and wisdom and compassion and other-centeredness? How many times did we ask the spirit to control us? We have way too much self-confidence, way too much. So this text is built to what? Demolish in a very sweet way, self-confidence. God gives you his spirit. So there's not a moment in the day, Holy Spirit, help me with this. Holy Spirit, contrain this thought. Holy Spirit, I'm driving home, literally, give me patience. <laughs> Holy Spirit, I have this terrible challenge at work. Holy Spirit, give me what I need. 
And as you open the Word of God and you read the Word of God and you soak your imagination in the Word of God and that Word of God shows you Jesus more and more and more, you will have what Paul says even in 1 Corinthians. We have the mind of Christ. We have the Spirit. I could go on and on and on about how much you need and how you get the Holy Spirit. Is that part clear? Pull up the shade. Let the light in. Let the Spirit come in and illumine everything about uh, who you are, what you desire how you're speaking. That's it. Let's be a spiritual church. Yes? Let's pray. Well, the alternatives, Lord, are fairly starkly presented to us. Human church, strife, jealousy, immaturity. Nothing good happens eternally speaking. Or a united body of people desperate for the gospel and so empowered and satisfied by the love of Christ and the gospel that we are craving our hearts be filled with the spirit of the resurrected Christ. So bring to pass in this precious fellowship a spiritual way of doing church. And may the world see and be envious. May they want to be a part of it. May they wonder what is going on there. It looks otherworldly because it is. In Jesus' name, amen.